As you're finding your seat, I have a question for you. When you hear the word disciple, what do you think? Or how would you define what a disciple is? So, true confession, when I became a Christian, I didn't actually understand what the word disciple meant. It took me a long time to try to figure out, like, I saw the word disciple in the Bible, and some people were called disciples, but then... I guess I'm a Christian now, so am I a disciple? And, and what does that really mean? And, you know, the word doesn't really get used a lot in our society. We don't hear the word disciple all that often. And sometimes you'll hear it in a church context. So sometimes you'll hear about discipleship groups or discipleship classes. Uh, but what does it really mean? I mean, even in our mission statement as a church, we say that we are to go into our world with good news to make and equip growing disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, you're probably just like me, and it's always good for us to what concepts mean in the life of a believer. And so, beginning next week, we're going to start a five-part series on the topic of discipleship. The series is going to be called Follow Me, Jesus' Call to Authentic Discipleship. And Jesus has things to tell us from his word about what it means to follow him, what it means to know him what it means to love him, what it means to obey him. These are concepts that we're going to be talking about in this series so that as we go through this series as a church, we are better equipped to go into our world with the good news of Jesus Christ, not only as disciples, but to make and equip growing disciples and to share our faith with other people. So we'll be starting that next week. Today, however, we are finishing our summer series on the Psalms. Um, It's just been a wonderful time as we've had guest speakers come in the past few weeks, just hearing God's word from the Psalms speak to our hearts. So today is the final message in the series, and we have David Schrock with us here today. David's a pastor at Occoquan Bible Church. He's going to be speaking to us from Psalm 29, and David's become a good friend to our church over the past year. He and I happened to meet uh, going to a pillar conference, a small group meeting out in Leesburg. We were both exploring uh, just affiliation with different networks of churches. And he and I drove out together from here out to Leesburg. And that began just a, an informal friendship where we just were getting to know each other and finding out what was going on in each other's churches. And we've expanded that so that other elders and members of our churches have gotten to know each other a little bit better. Actually, on a regular basis, we meet together and have lunch together and have a meal and just share about what God is doing in our churches and how we can be partnering together for the advance of the gospel right here in Northern Virginia. David also is a visionary. He's a guy that likes to equip and train leaders. And he was helpful in the formation of a seminary out in Indianapolis. And it was actually through our conversations with David that this idea for the class that I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, came to fruition. This theological vision for church and ministry was was David's idea. Now, I have some good news and I have some bad news. As you can see, the bad news is on the screen. The class that we talked about happening this fall is actually going to be postponed until the spring. So we are, the good news, we are still going to have the class, but we realized that we didn't actually uh, build this into the schedule well enough. And we got some feedback from community group leaders that said Thursday nights probably wasn't going to work. And the number of classes 
uh, throughout the fall probably wasn't going to make it so that people could come to every week. So we're going to actually meet with David after church today and talk some more about how we might be able to offer this class in the springtime in a way that's more accessible to people so that we can truly all grow in our vision of how church and ministry work together in the context of a local church and as a community of believers. So, as I said, David has become a good friend to us. We look forward to partnering with Akaquan Bible in the days ahead. And I think we're going to be blessed today as he brings God's word to us. So please welcome David as he comes to share. Thank you, brother. Well, as Vince said, it is a joy to gather with him and Mark and Kenneth. I've gotten to know them over the last year or so, and uh, to be with you guys this morning is a great joy. You've already ministered to me through song and uh, worshiping together, and I pray that as we open God's Word with one another, that Psalm 29 will speak to us, and that our response together would be one of glory, giving glory to the Lord who is worthy of all praise. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to Psalm 29. At our church, when we read the scriptures, we stand together. Uh, so I'm going to invite you to stand for the, uh, the hearing of God's word, if you're able to do that. And we're going to begin at Psalm 29 in the superscription and read on down to the end. This is Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would bless your people today. Father, that you would give us peace and you would give us joy. You would give us a vision of your son and a vision of your glory. And together we would respond in praise to you. Father, I pray for perhaps any who are here today who do not know you, who have not seen the glory of Christ revealed through the gospel, that you would open their eyes to see and to know Jesus, and that those who do know him, that you would strengthen their hearts. Father, that you to, together, as we worship you, would be glorified and our hearts satisfied in you. Father, help me to proclaim your word, and may your word have its full effect in us today. And may our praise redound to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And be seated. 
This morning I want to bring a word from Psalm 29 about worship and the Word of God. From this psalm we will hear what David has to say about the glory of God in worship. And we will also see quite visually how God's Word is central to any and all true worship. But more than that, I pray that the God of glory will stir our affections to not only learn about worship, but to join the chorus of heavenly praise and to worship God on earth as He is worshipped in heaven. Truth is, all of us have come to church this morning as worshipers. The question is, are we worshipping rightly? And how would we know if we are worshipping wrongly? Throughout the Bible and throughout the world, we see people worshiping God and we see people worshiping idols. Worship is natural to what it means to be human. Just think of the new season of worship that just started. Football season is here. And I guarantee that there is worship going on. As people gather in temples, known as stadiums, Dressed as religious devotees to their favorite team, they will celebrate, they will lament, and perhaps with some, with great superstition, they will even confess their sins if they think that it will make their team win the game. We do not need help worshiping. We need help worshiping the true God in the right way. This is true If you consider yourself outside of Christ today, you are considering the claims of Jesus and who he is and your passions are pursuing the things of the world. And this is true if you are a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, and you have forsaken the fleeting pleasures of this world. John Calvin once said, our hearts are idol making factories and we will continue to love and worship and make false gods until God comes and changes our hearts. And that's why here we are here this morning. We need for God to show us how puny our idols are compared to His infinite glory. For until we see His glory, we will not think that our idols are small or unsatisfying. Until we see the teal blue ocean and the powder white sands of the beach, we will be content to make mud pies in the slums. Or to put it differently, until we see the glory of God, we will think that paradise is the teal blue ocean and the powder white sand of our favorite beach destination. How effortlessly we turn the gifts of God into saltwater idols. We drink them down, thinking that they will satisfy our thirst. But in the process, they only make us more thirsty. In the end, God's good gifts end up destroying us because we have not learned how to worship God and to give thanks to Him for all that we have from Him. Friends, we need God to protect us from ourselves and to protect us from the idols that we make. And the way that He does that is by giving us Himself and teaching us how to worship Him in and through Jesus Christ. So with the time we have this morning, I want to show you how Psalm 29 gives us a vision of God and calls us to proclaim His glory. 
For indeed, without a sustained vision of God in His glory, we will continue to make idols of football washing, coffee drinking, crossfit training, child rearing, beach going, couch potatoing, or anything else that we can put our eyes upon. Thankfully, God has given us something greater for us to worship. And in Psalm 29, we see who that is. Psalm 29 itself, we find an unmistakable God-centeredness. Eighteen times we find the name Yahweh. It is translated with the capital letters, the Lord. And this word is not just another generic name for God. Yahweh is the covenant name of Israel's God. Yahweh is the God who made Himself known to Israel when He saved them from Egypt. He is the God who stands above all other gods. And in 11 verses, Psalm 29 is intended to show us the glory of this God. Indeed, if we take a moment to survey the psalm, we will see glory throughout. In verse 1, David commands the heavenly beings and everyone else to ascribe, to give glory to God. Verse 2, David amplifies his command by saying that glory is due to God. He deserves our praise. In fact, in verse 3, David even assigns God the title, the God of glory. This is who he is. And this is what he does. All that he does is glorious so that when we come to verse 9, all in his temple cry out glory. In this repeated word, we see that glory fills Psalm 29 the way that the Spirit filled the temple of God. But glory is not restricted to this word alone, for as we will see, Psalm 29 follows the glory of God from heaven to the God of glory moving throughout the earth and finally resting in the temple of God. In these three movements, Psalm 29 shows us at least five different applications of God's glory. Verses 1 and 2, we see the glory of God in heaven. In verses 3 through 9, we see the glory of God in creation, the glory of God revealed in His Word, and the glory of God in His temple. And then in verses 10 and 11, and with connections to Psalm 28 and 30, we see the glory of God in salvation. That's where we need to go this morning, so that we might see and savor the glory of God. And the first thing that we see is the glory of God in heaven, or perhaps the glory of God in himself. Listen again to verses 1 and 2, where David calls you and I to worship the Lord. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Four times, David uses the name of the Lord, calling attention to who is being worshipped. Three times he uses the word ascribe, which gives us and calls us to give glory to God. Now, importantly, he's not saying that by giving glory to God, it is adding something to God or taking something away from ourselves. God is infinitely glorious and is not improved by our worship. It's not as though God is like a bike tire who is losing air and our praises are meant to pump him up again. No, he is totally, completely and entirely self-sufficient and overflowing in glory, which is another way of saying that he is infinitely good and infinitely beautiful and infinitely holy. 
Therefore, when we come to worship, we are not serving Him as if He needed anything from us. No, we come to receive from Him and to respond to His infinite perfections with praise. David's call to give glory to God teaches us how we glorify God. The word for glory is the word for heavy. And in our worship, we are not adding weight to God, but rather we are treating God with the weight that He deserves. We are repenting of the ways we take God too lightly, and we are bowing down before the weight of His holiness. Indeed, the command to worship in verse 2 is the command to bow down. Bow down to the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Later in Psalm 95, verse 6, it says, Come, let us worship and bow down. It could really be said, Come, bow down and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So here in this fourth command, He calls us to bow before God. At our church, we don't often bow. Maybe some of you do when you worship, or maybe when you are at home and you're private places of prayer, you bow before the Lord. Whatever the case, I think that this is a missing element often in American worship. As we learn things through bodily actions, it would do us great good to physically lower ourselves and bow before God. As we bend our bodies and bend our hearts in humble adoration to our Creator. Remember, it was Satan's downfall and the downfall of mankind as well that they sought to be like God. In pride, Satan wanted to be worshipped. And he offered the same opportunity to Adam and Eve. Aligning themselves with Satan's lie, the first family ate the fruit in order to be like God. And tragically, this attempt to be God resulted in death. Ever after, man has tried to pull himself up and to prove how great he is. How many men have used money and manipulation and deceit to exalt themselves? How many women have bought the lie that they can make it on their own and don't need anyone, especially a man? To our core, we are constantly trying to magnify our glory, to hide its deficiencies. Why else do people continue to buy the latest toys and to spend thousands of dollars on cosmetic surgery? How often do we say and do things in order to receive the praise of others? Why do we do it? It's because we are starving for glory. But we need to know that the search for glory is not wrong. The problem is that in our fallen world and with our fallen hearts, we think that we will be happy when others make much of ourselves and we get the glory. We may even use God and our knowledge of God to increase our glory and the praise we receive. But that turns the mirror in the wrong way. The source of glory is found in God and not in the praises of men. As verse 3 puts it, God is the God of glory. And only when we come to worship Him and to enjoy His glory, then and only then do we begin to reflect the glory that we have been created for. This is why Psalm 29 is so important for us. Because it teaches us to stop looking to glorify ourselves and it shows us how our hearts become satisfied in the God of glory. Indeed, Psalm 29 begins with a vision of God's glory in Himself. But it does not stay in heaven. 
very quickly, the God of glory thunders and demonstrates the power of His glory that is seen in creation. And this is the second aspect of glory. The glory of God in creation. From verse 3 to verse 9, we watch as a storm moves from the Mediterranean Sea across the land to Israel. Verse 3 speaks of the thunder. Verse 7 describes the lightning as flashes of flaming fire. And in between, we can see the storm moving from west to east. If you know the geography of Israel, you can watch the storm building on the sea in verse 3, like we are watching Hurricane Dorian right now. In verse 5, the winds rip into the land and they break the mighty cedars in Lebanon. Lebanon is north of Israel, right on the coast, and its cedars, somewhat like the California redwoods, were renowned. They were the trees that were used to build the temple in 1 Kings 5. In verse 6, Syrian is mentioned. This location is associated with Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the massive snow-capped mountain that can be seen for miles away in northern Israel. And it too is associated with the temple. As Psalm 133 describes the blessings of Hermon's waters flowing down to Zion. From there, the storm continues to the wilderness of Kadesh in verse 8. Now, this is a bit confusing because the storm is ripping through the northern part of Israel and Kadesh is usually associated with the southern part of Israel. Now, to be thorough, there is another Kadesh in the northern part of Israel that was a city of refuge. But here, the emphasis is on the wilderness and not a city. So you might ask, what, what is David doing here? And my answer is that he is following the storm to the temple in verse 9. The word Kadesh can also be defined as the word for holy or consecrated. And in verse 8 then, he is picking up, he is engulfing the entire land in this storm from north to south. And he may also be picking up the historical event associated with Israel's wilderness wanderings that took place in Kadesh. Kadesh Barnea was the place that Israel rebelled against God. When they heard the spies' report of the people in the land, the people of Israel feared God and did not obey His word to go into the land. But here, the word of God is not thwarted by unbelief. The word of God is not thwarted by man's sin. Rather, God's word comes in power and it removes every obstacle in its path. God is truly the Lord of the storm, and it is He who brings His people into His presence. So listen now to these words from verse 3 to verse 9 and the approaching of the storm. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. Or perhaps even better, the Lord's voice makes the oaks shake. Strips the forest bare. And in all his temple, his people cry, Glory! Glory! We could go on about the glory of God in creation. 
But it is remarkable that this psalm focuses on the Word of God, the voice that is speaking this power. And this demonstrates the glory of God in a third way, the glory of God in His Word. Like lightning strikes in the psalm here, the voice of the Lord repeats seven times. Indeed, this psalm is not just about creation, it is about the Creator and His all-powerful Word. Notice again from verse 3 all the way to verse 9 how the voice of the Lord is running through creation. In verse 3, we see that the voice of the Lord is over the waters. In verse 5, God's voice breaks the mighty cedars of Lebanon. And in verse 6, He makes Lebanon and Mount Hermon skip like a calf and throws these mountains out of the way as His voice comes through. These words remind us That God's Word does what God wants. There is no tree, there is no nation, there is no ocean, there is no king that can stand in the way of God. No angel, no philosophy, no false teacher, no professor at George Mason can overturn God's Word. God's Word will obliterate all who stand against Him and will leave creation with one single combined word. Glory. Today we get all kinds of promises from all kinds of people and politicians, companies, and commercials. But which one of them can keep its word 100% of the time without fail? Which one of us has a perfect track record with the things that we have said? All of our words are weak. They are subject to change. But not so the voice of God. His glory is seen in the perfection of His ability to keep every promise. Just consider one promise. Genesis 12, verses 1-3. through God promised Abraham that in him all of the nations would be blessed. If you read in Galatians 3, you find that this word that was proclaimed to Abraham was the gospel preached beforehand. And though the history of Israel often looked as though that this promise of blessing would fail, in the end, it was marvelously and miraculously fulfilled in the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself, His death on a cross, and His resurrection on the third day. Truly, Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the blessed Son of Abraham, who came to fulfill all the ancient promises of God and to bring blessings to the nations. Today, all who trust in Christ are recipients of this word long ago promised to Abraham. All those who trust in Christ will find forgiveness of their sins and a place in this eternal kingdom and blessings that will reign forever and ever. This is the promise to any and all who trust in Jesus. And it is because God's word of salvation is true. His word of forgiveness is trustworthy. Not one of God's promises has ever failed. It has taken longer than some of us would like. But they never fail. God's Word cannot fail. He upholds the universe with His Word, and the Word of the Gospel is running through the world today, bringing people into His presence, which is what we find in verse 9. The glory of God in the temple. 
Now we need to ask the question, what temple is David talking about in verse 9? Is the temple here, the one in Jerusalem, the one that would be built by Solomon, David's son, the one described perhaps in Psalm 30? Superscription there says a song at the dedication of the temple. Is that the one? Or perhaps it's the temple of creation. If you read Psalm 104, it speaks of the universe as God's cosmic sanctuary. Or maybe the temple in verse 9 is something more general. A general reference to the place where God comes and dwells with his people. If I were to vote on one of those, I think it is the last. It is a general idea of the place where God comes and visits and meets with his people. We can see this because in verse 9, it uses a word for temple that is different than the temple that is described in Psalm 30. The word in Psalm 30 speaks of the house that is built in Jerusalem. But here in verse 9 of Psalm 29, it is speaking of a place within that temple, the very meeting place between God and man. And it's this more general use of the word that describes God's presence more than any building. So it seems that the best way to read this temple language is to see it as a reference to where God is. Or perhaps to say it differently. God's temple is the place where God's spirit causes God's people to cry glory. And at that place is where the temple is found. In fact, throughout the Bible, we find a variety of temples, places where God meets with his people. If this was a different sermon, we could go and look at all of those together today. But let me summarize. In the Bible, many of these dwelling places, the goal is the same. God is sending forth his powerful word in order to bring his people into his presence. This is what is happening in Psalm 29. God is sending out His Word and power to bring His people into His presence. And in that presence is always described in temple language. Even the New Testament church is described as the temple of God, where the Spirit of God dwells and the people of God gather to worship in His name. Indeed, the Word of God is going out into the ends of the earth to draw God's people to Himself and to bring them into His presence. This morning, as you look around, the living stones of God that have been quarried out of the nations have been gathered together by the Spirit of God to come and to worship God in the name of Christ and to offer praise to our Father in heaven and to cry glory. Indeed, there are temples of Jesus Christ all throughout the earth. Every place that the Spirit gathers His people together. In fact, if we make a stronger connection between Psalm 29 and ourselves today, one of the things that we see is that whenever the Spirit of God comes to gather His people into His presence, God would come with wind and with fire and with glory. That's what we see in Psalm 29. It's what we see when the tabernacle was built and God's glory stood above the sanctuary as a pillar of fire. When the temple was built in Jerusalem, God's glory again filled the house of Zion. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out, a rushing wind filled the upper room and pillars of fire stood above the heads of the apostles. What is God telling us in Acts 2? God has come to dwell with His people just as He did under the Old Covenant. Only in the New Covenant, the Spirit has come and He will not leave. 
He's bringing the nations to himself in the name of Christ, just as he promised long ago, and his word will not fail. So too in Psalm 29. God's voice was rushing through the land until it settled in Zion. This was God's purpose to bring his people into his presence so that they could worship him. Same purpose exists here today. God has sent out his gospel to gather his people in the spirit to bring them together. As Hebrews 12 says, when we gather as a church at Redeeming Grace or at Occoquan Bible Church or any other church that is founded on the gospel, we are coming not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, where the people of God, saved by the grace of God, come and cry out glory and give praise to God in heaven. Today, as the church is the living temple of God, is glorious seen in our midst. And as His Word and His Spirit lead us in worship, we respond in praise to Him. But all this praise depends on one other aspect of His glory, and it is the glory of God in salvation. Psalm 29, salvation and forgiveness of sins are not immediately seen. But as soon as we read Psalm 29 in the context of the Psalms around it, salvation leaps off the page. Go look at Psalm 28, verses 8 and 9. And this is what David says in this psalm. He says, The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. So Psalm 28 ends with David crying out for God to save. And then look at how Psalm 30 begins. Again, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. He's praising God for the salvation that God has given to him. What happens in between in Psalm 29? In context, the answer to David's prayer of salvation is found in Psalm 29. The means by which God has saved David is by God sending his word and bringing him into his presence. Indeed, in Psalm 29 itself, God comes over the seas and through the cedars of Lebanon. He pushes the mountains out of the way so that he can bring his people into his presence in the temple. And as we see in verses 10 and 11, this is what happens there. He says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. You see what these verses are doing? They are confirming the fact that God rules over all evil powers. In the Old Testament, the sea was a place of chaos and evil. The word for flood here is only used in one other place in the Old Testament, in Genesis 6 through 11, the place where the flood comes to destroy the wickedness on the earth. But that was also the place that God saved his people through the waters of judgment. Here again, God is saving his people from chaos. He is granting them peace as he comes to be their savior. As David prayed for in Psalm 28 to strengthen and save his people. Now in Psalm 29, David is watching the power of God coming to his aid. At the end of the psalm, he is praying once more for strength and blessing. 
strength and blessing and peace that will be described in Psalm 30. Redeeming Grace Church, let me ask you a question. A question that I asked our church a few weeks ago. Why do you worship? Is it not for this reason? That the God of creation has become the God of your salvation. I pray that it is so. And that anyone who does not know Christ here today, the God of creation can be the God of your salvation as you cry out for mercy to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Indeed, this is what the songs of heaven are made of. The redeemed of the Lord sing praises to God for His saving grace and His loving power. And we too gather together today to celebrate what God has done in this world and in our lives. And He has saved us from seeking glory in created things. He has forgiven us for neglecting His glory. Wonderfully, by the power of His Word, He has shown His gospel light into our hearts And we respond to that gospel of Jesus Christ in His temple, crying, glory. Do you know God's glory? Does the God that you worship make you cry, glory? If not, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. If not, it may be because there are idols that are blocking your view of God. And if that is the case, cry out to see God's glory. And then look for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the glory of God made visible. In the Word made flesh, we see the one in whom the glory of God dwells bodily. Friends, this is why we're here. On this earth... And in this assembly, to see and to savor the glory of God and to respond with glad-hearted worship. May God open your eyes to see Him. And may He strengthen your hearts to cry, glory. 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 For He alone is worth it. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that our eyes are blind and our hearts are unbelieving until your spirit comes and gives us life until you come and give us faith until you open our eyes to see the grace and the glory that is found in the face of Jesus Christ Father I pray for anyone who is here today that does not know Christ that you would have mercy upon them You would open their eyes to see the goodness that is found in the gospel. You would give them power to turn from their sins and their idols and to bow down before King Jesus. And Father, for those who know you, I pray that you would give them grace to turn away from the idols that continue to pull them away from you. Father, through your word and through the worship here this morning and throughout the week, I pray that you would satisfy them with more of yourself. Father, give us grace to believe that your word is sufficient. Your word is life-giving. Your word is all-authoritative. We pray that you would speak to us in our inner beings and that you would cause us to cry glory 
And that vision of you would lead us to walk as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his strong name. Amen.